the cost of defence, Australia's cybersecurity strategy, and TikTok challenges and Europe. Welcome to Policy Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss the 2020 cybersecurity strategy. To me, the problem is that the whole economy suffers from poor cybersecurity. And the issue of TikTok data security and content moderation. TikTok has simply said that they have changed those guidelines and that everything is fine now and nothing is happening anymore. But first, Michael Shoebridge and Marcus Hellyer discuss the Cost of Defence 2020 report, which focuses on the Defence Strategic Update. They weigh in on the strategy, timeframes and capabilities being acquired and whether they're fit for purpose in an environment where we now have zero warning time. Well, Marcus, um, we've got 10 minutes to talk about $575 billion. So uh, let's get started. You've, you've produced your assessment of uh, the cost of defence mm-hmm. after the government's release of the Defence Strategic Update mm-hmm. and its companion, how all the money's going to get spent in the force structure plan. Just starting with the money, because no serious conversation uh, is free. What's the money look like here? All right. Well, the money picture is actually probably the clearest part of this uh, work of art. And the government, despite the terrible economic circumstances Australia's facing and the terrible situation the government's budget is now in with massive deficits where they expected to be in surplus, it's actually doubled down on the 2016 white paper funding model, which locked in a, a fixed funding line for 10 years. We're now four years into that. They've delivered the money so far and they've extended that model for another four years, so out for 10 years. And it's, you could say it's a very generous funding model. There's real growth in that over the 10 years. Uh, as you said, over the 10 years, it's uh, a cool half trillion dollars plus $575 billion. Uh, It grows by over 80% over the decade, so there's very substantial real growth there despite the pain to the rest of the economy and the rest of the budget. So it's interesting because defence now actually can uh, plan on acquiring some very significant and expensive new capabilities. They're in a really good position. So should we pop the thought bubble about 2% of GDP? Because to me, the key thing is there is no link between this expenditure plan and a percentage of GDP. The GDP can wander around, but this is a fixed real growth funding. Yeah, so what the everybody seems to forget that in 2016 the government did not link the defence budget to 2% of GDP precisely because of that reason. If the economy goes up, the budget goes up. If the economy goes down, the defence budget goes down, which makes long-term planning really hard. What they said is that in 2021, so this financial year, uh, they would actually coincide that the defence budget would be 2%, but it wasn't locked in there forever. There was a fixed funding line that defence would get regardless of what happened to the economy, and that's what the government has delivered. So they've continued that model in the defence strategic update. Now, for those people who do sort of say, yeah, sure, okay, but what does that mean in terms of GDP? Well, because because of the hit to GDP, which isn't over yet, this year it's the defence budget's at about 
about 2.2%. Mm-hmm. And I think over the next five years, even if the economy makes a reasonably good recovery, I think the defence budget could grow to about 2.5% over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And if we're in a prolonged downturn, then it could be even more than that. So it's probably important that the defence spend be part of the rebuilding of Australia's economy post the pandemic. And we'll get to that later when we look at the implications for Australian industry in this budget and this plan. Well, yeah, I think the government would really like to see the defence budget as a form of stimulus spending. The problem always with defence spending is the timeframes don't really match up because defence programs take so long to deliver. Well, that, that is a great shift now to what the strategy is. So the money's there, but to me, the strategic update is almost bigger than a white paper in the change in strategic direction for Australia. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It's, I mean, it's not called a white paper, but I, it's got the strategic heft of a white paper. There's some pretty important stuff in there. And people have picked up on that it's redefined our immediate region as a very large, you know, it's it's essentially all of Southeast Asia, so it's a very big um, immediate region. But I think the really key shifts going on in here is first the acknowledgement that we can no longer match major powers. So we need different kinds of capability that can hold them at risk from greater range. So, in, And it specifically says we can no longer rely on a pr- predominantly defensive force. So really we're talking about we need long-range offensive capabilities such as strike to be able to hit a major powers forward operating bases and capabilities as they come into the region. So A, new kinds of capabilities are needed. And I think the other big shift is a very clear statement that we can no longer rely on warning time. And it actually makes that statement in the context even of a conventional attack on Australia. So traditionally it was sort of, well, we'd get 10 years of warning of a major attack on Australia. That's out the window. So what we're really saying is we need fundamentally different new capabilities and we need them now. And I think, you know, you would also say that perhaps Despite those high-level statements, the supporting force structure plan doesn't quite deliver that. There's one yet. other element in in the front end, the in the strategy, which says technological change now means that autonomy and autonomous systems under sea, on land, and in the air, and in space will be fundamental parts of Australia's military power. And there's an urgency around getting those into the hands of our military. Uh, And the the link to the pandemic, I think, comes through very clearly in the strategic update too. Yeah, Uh, There have been years of discussions about supply chains being extended for key things like guided missiles, mm -hmm. but they'd never really got out of the... Uh, a few little uh, bubbles inside the security community. The pandemic has shown, no, that's a real problem. If it's true for medical supplies, it's also true for all the things militaries need to support themselves when they engage in combat. I I think, you know, the idea of sovereignty really flows through a lot of the government's policy statements, not just in defence. So it wants to build greater sovereignty. I think the advantage that defence and defence industry have is they've sort of got a four-year head start on the basis of the defence industry policy that came out of the 2016 white paper. I think the, the, the challenge has been that delivery of that has been quite slow. You can change industry policy, but changing industry capability takes longer. It is that classic ocean liner that takes a long time to, to change. Um, so... 
you know, one of the things the government wants to do is build greater sovereignty in Australian defence industry, which I think is a good thing, providing you're spending on the right things. You're not just mm. trying to do absolutely everything here, whether it makes sense or not. You know, and one of the things you see by looking at the numbers in there is as the defence budget grows, capital investment share of the budget grows, and on top of that, the government wants a greater share of the capital budget to go to Australian industry. So, so how much could so, be being spent on Australian industry capability um, by the end of this decade? Well, by the end of the decade, if as you stack all of those three factors, Australian defence industry will go from about a $2.5 billion a year enterprise in terms of acquisition to potentially a $10 billion a year Mm. enterprise. So that's a lot of cash to pump through that pipeline. And I think that's the real challenge is how do you grow the Australian defence ecosystem to the point where it can absorb $10 billion and deliver $10 billion of good capability. And that's on top of the probably 15, 16, 17 billion dollars spent here on sustainment of capability. Mm. So you're trying to get to a 25 billion dollar a year enterprise. But it seems to me there's a right way and a wrong way to grow Australian industry capability. And I would say doing more of what is being done in the national shipbuilding plan is probably the wrong way. And the reason I would say that is they are the big complex platforms and doing more of that kind of Australian industry capability with things like land vehicles, for example, doesn't really produce the value, but it doesn't do what the strategic update says is needed, which is make a big shift in force structure to autonomy, things that can be produced at high volumes rapidly and replaced, and closing gaps like in guided missiles. So the spend needs to shift to that missing chunk that the pandemic has shown us. The pandemic plus the increasing offensive power of potential adversaries has shown us is the real meat. Yeah, look, I think the bottom line is, is you don't want to lose sight of the fact that your industry policy has to support your military strategic policy. And there's always the risk of the tail wagging the dog. And we've seen that already, and there's really quite a frank acknowledgement of that in the DSU, where it says that we've deliberately slowed down the build of the future frigates to extend build so we have a continuous build program and we're paying more money to slow see, it down that, in, in an inefficient way. That, that gives me a headache because the whole front end, the whole strategy says time is not our friend. Correct. There's no 10-year warning time anymore. Conflict is credible. We need to be able to deploy our military and support it in quite an intense combat environment and we've got enormous gaps in how we do that. So there's an urgency there. But to have the mega projects slowed down goes against that. And so I, I think the big challenge is acceleration. And let me give you an example of the problem of acceleration and why maybe a chunk of this needs to be taken out of defence's hands. There's a capability acceleration fund uh, in, in the force structure plan. I think it's about $130 million. But guess what? Uh, the urgency of accelerating capability into our military's hands uh, is so uh, seized on that that fund won't start until the middle of this decade. So, so what, what you're saying is we need to accelerate the acceleration fund. Yes, and I, I think it's, it's a symptom of the, the um, real difficulty in getting 
this fast-moving mindset into the very large defence organisation with all its elaborate processes. I still think we face a Qantas Jetstar situation where defence is like big, slow-moving Qantas, and if you want fast, cheap, rapid capability acceleration, you need it done outside that defence yeah. organisation. You know, and I'd agree. I think there's a lot of areas in the defence strategic update where at the high-level strategy there's some really good acknowledgements, some good clear statements about where, where we are and what we need to be doing. But when you look at the golden thread of logic that flows down either to the force structure or to the industry policy, I think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done to really flow that kind of thinking through. I think we're seeing the start of some really interestingly new and different ways to think about defence and how to do defence and how to force structure, but I think this is just the first part of our conversation that needs to be had, but overall it needs to get faster. Well, I think the government's going to need some quick wins to show it means what it says in the front end. If time is not our friend, it needs some quick wins on things like setting up a missile production line here in Australia. Uh, maybe now is the right time to accelerate undersea unmanned systems. If you wanted a, uh, to have a strong negotiating position with a company like Boeing, uh, now is the time. They can't sell an airliner anywhere in the world at the moment. So would they be interested in selling Australia an Orca undersea system right now? Yes, they would. So uh, there needs to be some quick wins to really close that gap between the slow-moving force structure plan and the sense of absolute urgency in the strategy. But $575 billion gives a lot of room to, to do things. And I think that's a key point. Australia's got a lot of leverage now with all of that money and I think we need to be a little more ambitious in spending it quickly and delivering capability quickly. Well, Marcus, you've taken two big government documents, the strategic update and the force structure plan, and you've analysed them and you've made them coherent in plain English with a rather uh, attractive cover, I think. So I'd encourage people to, to look at these, even if you just don't make it through uh, past the 10 graphs, you will understand much more about what's happening with public money in defence than you would have uh, just looking at the documents themselves. So thanks very much, Marcus. Thank you, Michael. Next, Tommy Wren and Bart Hogeveen discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the new national cybersecurity strategy. G'day Bart, how are you? G'day Tom, yeah, good, how are you? So today we're going to talk about the cybersecurity strategy. It came out last week uh, and I thought we'd start by like, what is the point of a strategy? Yeah, that's a really good question. What's the point of a strategy here? Um, and I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, there is no really defined answer, right? I mean, what is a strategy? Normally what you would expect in a strategy is something like a direction, a mission, vision, that it would give you some choices that in this case government makes. It might even give you a bit of a state of play. What's our current perception of threat landscape or kind of the, 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 the national or international landscape? But I think a strategy also is kind of a landmark. So it, it kind of sets a new direction based on either addressing a need uh, or that in this case, government is going into a different direction and, and, and departs from the previous strategy, the 2016 strategy. So I think that what a strategy should do is it, it should tell you how you're going to win. I'm going to be a bit critical of the strategy here, and I'm not sure that this strategy tells us how we're going to win. It's kind of in the shadows a bit, I think. So if you're going to win, what's the game or what's the, 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's defined by what is what do you think the problem is. Yeah. I think to me the problem is that the whole economy suffers from poor cybersecurity, mm-hmm. and we want to get better. And if if we do better, then the whole economy will benefit. The problem I see with this strategy is that it's very focused on I'd call the pointy edge, the tip of the spear. So there's a lot of money for ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate. There's a fair bit of money for law enforcement. And it really, probably 85% of the money is in those two areas. And they're really niche capabilities that are like scalpels Mm -hmm. that'll cut out small parts of the problem, but we're really relying on the, the rest of everybody so if you would describe the problem that the strategy in your work should address, I mean, what, what would be the scope of the problem that you would have expected? I would have liked to have seen a lot more focus on things that are in the strategy, responsibility for business, responsibility for individuals. And the analogy I like is the road system where everyone uses the roads, we all benefit from it, but there's distributed responsibility for safety. So people have to drive safely, but also roads are constructed in a safe way. Uh, Car manufacturers build cars that are safe or safer than they could be. And there's regulation and there's expectations and there's incentives around all of that. And that's kind of hidden away in the strategy, but it's not pulled out. It's a bit- That's what you would expect it, right? I mean, that the government would step up and bring up regulations or stronger guidance and stronger advice in terms of what businesses and what citizens should be doing. Yeah. Um, is that, I mean, and you're saying this is not really in the strategy. I mean, it is there, but it's not as strong as you- It's not front and center. No, right. So the, for example, it says somewhere- uh, Doesn't it go actually much farther? Is that actually that, that let's say the, the strategy says, we government take charge of kind of point the edge of security. So state-based attacks, state-sponsored attacks, the really serious organized cybercrime, but the rest we leave kind of to businesses or to what they call the community. Yeah, I think those are positive, right? So it's it's a positive statement to say we're responsible for this part mm-hmm. and everyone else is responsible for that. I think it needs a bit more leadership though. So for example, it is clarify cybersecurity obligations. This consultation will consider multiple reform options, including the role of privacy and consumer protection laws and duties for company directors. So it's a commitment to have a consultation about something. I would have rather it been a commitment to actually do something. And I think bringing that to the fore of the strategy would make me a lot happier. You've been part of some of the consultations that were leading up to this strategy um, quite a while ago. Uh, I mean, what what did you hear in those consultations that you either see reflected or don't see reflected in in this strategy document? Most of what was in the consultation is in fact reflected in the strategy document. So it's not that it's not there. I think it's just that the focus is in the wrong place. So the focus is very much on what the government can control and where it can't control it, it's somewhat weak. So it talks about consultation, it talks about developing a plan in consultation. And I just would have liked to have seen stronger deliverables. Um, So the the back half of the document has a whole lot of metrics, which when you look at them aren't really metrics. They're just, we're going to do this at some point in the future at an undefined point in time. That's not really different from, I think, the previous strategy, which was also, and I think, let's say that the previous team at ASPI also criticised that strategy for being not really specific and doesn't really have, let's say, measurable results included. 
I think this one is a bit vaguer than the previous one. So uh, when I joined ASPE, one of the first events I went to was a review of the cybersecurity strategy after a year. And the team at the time were able to come up with a traffic light system. For this one, there's no dates in here. So I wouldn't even know where the end point is. Uh, so we wouldn't be able to do that kind of report. One of the other criticisms I have is the Joint Cybersecurity Centres. There's a fair bit more money for those. What are they? And they are centres that were set up in pretty much every capital city around Australia that were meant to be hubs for collaboration. Between government, private sector... Exactly. Yeah. Yes, you know of them, Bart. <laughs> <laughs> heard of them. And the feedback I get is that the intent was great. We, we need more sharing between government and industry and the private sector. But we never really figured out how to use those facilities very well. So they've basically been underutilised. Is and it one of the things there that let's say that they're relying on very classified systems, that it's not really an open platform where people can go to and kind of share in an open and transparent environment. It's government property, it's working on classified systems and some, some organisations and some people have been accredited to use those um, classified systems. Um, and I, I actually also see the back-end strategy where they talk about setting up a new, very classified new system, <laughs> while at the same time we're relying on businesses and communities to do their own thing informed by what government is providing. So I think there is a bit of a... Uh, you're putting your finger on the tension at the heart of having your intelligence and security community as the centre of a cybersecurity strategy. So you really need to reach out to everyone and share what's relevant to them. The problem is that there's really, really good reasons that defence and intelligence types don't want to share information. And there's uh, that, that shows up in the strategy in that there's uh, actually money set aside for a new multi-directional sharing facility as opposed to the unidirectional sharing. But that is not a technical problem. That's a cultural problem. The culture of well, the signals directorate and defence, the culture is very much around, and this is the training you get, don't tell anyone anything. <laughs> so is that a problem, let's say, that the cybersecurity function within Commonwealth government sits so strongly within ASD and, and party within the Home Affairs Department, which are kind of naturally, of course, um, uh, their culture is not to disclose anything. Um, so would you recommend something, I mean, a different setup that would probably make it more of a whole nation approach or more of a national partnership? I have thought about it. So there's real benefits to having your information security and your intelligence functions together. And that is typical amongst the Five Eyes countries that they're together. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that as we now need to have cybersecurity as a whole of economy function, it becomes very difficult for them to talk to everyone freely. Right. So either you address that as a cultural issue within those organisations or you separate the organizations and start afresh. Maybe that, building on, let's say, there's kind of this, this kind of hard security focus of kind of the cyber strategy, but also to kind of the, the where, where cyber security sits within government. If you look, let's say, at the international environment, um, where obviously we have been, we are investing or will be investing substantially in kind of our defense and ASD capabilities, what does it do with kind of our relations overseas? Um, because I think there is typically kind of the security dilemma, right? So we want to have a more secure international space, but we are ramping up our security uh, capabilities in the absence of kind of a really kind of a trusted and confident international environment. What, is, what does that tell to our partners, friends and foes overseas? There is a bit of, I think there's a paragraph about encouraging norms of behaviour overseas. 
I wonder without if- really committing ourselves to. I mean, it says. Uh, I think the language is probably to the dislike of DFAT. I would I would assume pretty vague. So governments have a responsibility to uphold existing international law. Yeah, sure. Um, and norms of responsible state behavior. And, I, and there is kind of the assumption or the implicit message that Australia is also following that. But it doesn't, it, it's never, it's nowhere it really says explicitly how Australia or how the Australian government agencies are following international law and how they would encourage, let's say, our domestic adherence to um, what we're promoting overseas. I think there's many things we could do that would be far more transparent, that wouldn't give away any secrets whatsoever. Exactly, yeah. So, how would you rate the strategy out of ten? Out of ten, um, I would I would give it a six because six is for me kind of a just pass. Yes, yes. So for me, it's also a pass mark, but in Australia, it's five out of ten for a pass. There you have it. Uh, there are our thoughts on the um, the, the new national cybersecurity strategy. Um, thanks for the for the chat, Tom. And, thanks, uh, Bart. Finally, interns Alex Pasco and Daria Impiombato break down some of the issues surrounding TikTok, including data security and privacy, content moderation, and the app's lack of transparency. Thank you very much for joining me today, Daria. The social media app that's on everyone's lips at the moment is obviously TikTok. And because of the huge growth in its popularity, it's coming under increasing scrutiny all over the world. Obviously, TikTok, along with a number of other Chinese social media apps, were banned in India early this year. And as people will be aware, it's receiving a lot of attention in the US. Australia also launched its own investigation into TikTok recently, along with another Chinese social media app, WeChat. This was driven by concerns around whether these parent companies of these apps would be required to share user data with the Chinese government. Dari, would you be able to tell us a bit more about what's been happening internationally and more specifically, if there are any other actors or regions that we should be focusing on in this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think TikTok is a very interesting topic these days. Everyone has been talking about it, but there is a lot of confusion around what is actually happening. So TikTok has been in the eye of the storm since September last year when The Guardian published some um, internal leaks that gave out content moderation guidelines um, of TikTok. And it basically said that they were censoring content that was sensitive for the Chinese Communist Party. And that obviously uh, hit the stage, the global stage, and there was a lot uh, a lot of talk. And the most famous case at the time was that of this um, American teenager who published this uh, video putting makeup on and calling out the, the treatment of the Uyghur minority in the Xinjiang region of China. However, Nothing has really been done about this since then because TikTok has simply said that they have changed those guidelines and that everything is fine now and nothing is happening anymore until another leaked document uh, turned out later last year and it was published by The Intercept and it basically gave out the fact that um, this content moderation now we're censoring anyone who was fat or poor or just didn't comply with societal and quote I quote societal expectations. Um, so that was also a big deal. Um, however, now the attention seems to have shifted towards data uh, privacy um, and data protection uh, because 
TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company and it is based in Beijing. And so there is a lot of concern about where this data goes. If ByteDance has access to this data, does it mean that the Chinese Communist Party also has access to this data? These are questions that are yet to be, to be answered. And it's the main focus of uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, who has recently ordered a ban of the app in 45 days unless Microsoft buys it off. The lines are still very blurred there, however, because it's not very clear whether Microsoft intends to buy TikTok for only the U.S., Australia, New Zealand and Canada markets or whether they intend to buy the whole global app. That's really interesting. I guess when you talk about the Microsoft sale, uh, the notable country missing from that grouping is the UK. And then that brings our attention to what's happening with the, the EU and its member states. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So the EU's silence around this issue is very loud, actually, uh, at least in my opinion, because no country in the EU has yet come out to to criticize um, the app as intensely as the US has done. So the scrutiny in Europe has been mostly about data protection because they actually last year set up a task force uh, called the European Data Protection Board with the task of looking into TikTok and its data protection um, guidelines. And since then, the UK, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, and yesterday, France, actually, have started their own investigations into uh, uh, child data protection and, and general data regulation in, into TikTok. Um, however, TikTok has also announced recently they, that they are shifting their uh, storage of uh, European data to Ireland. And that might change this whole you know, this whole scenario, because that might mean that the EU top court might need to leave the case to the Irish data protection um, regulatory body. However, this is not unprecedented. We know that the the EU and the it, their general data protection regulation is among the strictest in the world. And Google in particular has been under very intense scrutiny. Uh, they received three fines over three years. And so it's really not unfair to think that they would be looking into such a huge app like TikTok because it has a lot of influence in the continent and a lot of power. But my issue with that is that Nobody in, in Europe is, is really talking about content moderation and censorship. That's really interesting, Daria. And yeah, quite worrying that there isn't enough focus on looking at content moderation and the censoring of quote unquote sensitive information. Could you tell us a bit more about, I guess, the implications of the, the EU's data protection regime or like the implications of this for TikTok in Europe? Yeah, so it is very unclear how they will manage this situation, but there is a concern around the fact that they can break down their services and basically provide different types of services in different geolocations, which would mean that they might actually change their data protection regulations in Europe for the European market in order to comply with those laws, but then keep a lower standard in other countries 
TikTok is particularly good at doing that. They're already doing it with their Chinese version, Douyin. So they've basically, what the two apps used to be one, two versions of the same thing, basically. Whereas now they have built a wall between the two apps and there is, you know, Chinese users can't use TikTok and vice versa. They also have different content moderation and censorship rules for different countries. So my question would be, is would that even be enough? Like if they manage to to get them to comply uh, to these laws, would that be enough for the global market? Do you think something like that is feasible with the ch- other Chinese app that's been d- somewhat discussed at WeChat, given that I think we know there is some difference in treatment with international users of WeChat versus people with Chinese accounts, but it sounds like it's unachievable if you're looking at regulating that type of app. I think, yeah, with WeChat, it would be a completely different conversation because there is no separation virtually between international WeChat and Chinese WeChat. That's why a lot of um, experts have also said that WeChat might even have a bigger impact in terms of international politics and just foreign influence. However, what I just wanted to bring back up was the the power that TikTok has over content moderation. And because of their algorithm um, and how refined it is, that's what they're famous for. It's what their success is based on. But there is really not much we know about it. And um, they have pledged quite recently, actually just last month, that they will release more information and be more transparent about uh, the works of this algorithm, but we still don't know what it entails. And we we really should know because we have experience with other social media apps like Facebook or YouTube and how powerful those can be in shaping public perception or even just um, over certain topics. And so it is important that we know how they're managing this content and what happens uh, behind the curtains. Even though they have already signed up to some regulatory bodies in Europe, for example, about disinformation and they have published some transparency reports, it's still not enough. And I think the EU and its regulatory bodies should really make it clear that this is not enough and it it should be a priority that they provide us with this sort of information before we allow them to have free access to all these markets. That brings my mind to Australia, just to bring it back to wrap up. The Prime Minister came out recently and said that it wasn't necessary to ban TikTok uh, here and that following a couple of investigations and advice from security agencies that the app doesn't pose national security risks. But uh, returning back to data protection and privacy, the Prime Minister sort of pointed to a need for users to be aware of how their data can be used by these social media companies and who could potentially have access to it in comparison to the EU's data protection regime, which is the most rigorous in the world. It doesn't sound like a rock-solid policy response to protect Australian users' data. What do you think about how this debate will go forward in Australia? I think Australia will very likely follow the US lead on these. However, I'm not particularly convinced that banning the app is the way forward because 
First of all, China is literally the only country who right now can compete with American technology companies and things like that. So there will be more in the future and we just have to to really create a solid system that we can replicate in order to protect data because it's been an issue for <laughs> for years and we still haven't quite figured it out. So actually what Morrison said is not dissimilar to what some um, European countries spoke people have said, um, especially Germany and France have come out to say that they don't think at the moment TikTok uh, poses a national security threat. The reality is that we don't know. And so there is a risk in that. And as I said before, the, the clearer the picture is, the better it is. Otherwise, in a couple of years, we might look back and regret. <laughs> Yeah. And given the focus on foreign interference in Australia, more discussion around content moderation is probably warranted in Australia too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your insights today, Daria. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with another episode next week. 